invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 um, this morning. It's been a few weeks since we uh, worked through, two weeks since we worked through this text together uh, through 2 Thessalonians. Uh, but my goal would be this. I want to, uh, this morning and this evening, uh, take two sermons to walk uh, the whole way through uh, this chapter. Uh, perhaps you don't know much about 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, there'll be some perplexing things uh, that you will run across in this text. You have a man who's called uh, a man of lawlessness, a son of destruction. You also have uh, someone or something called a restrainer acting to prevent this man of lawlessness to do stuff. Uh, perhaps you don't know much about these things I'm talking about. I encourage you to pay close attention today, take some notes, uh, consider eventually maybe transferring some to your Bible uh, so that this through this chapter, will be profitable and helpful to you. Um, I was originally going to try to do verses 1 through 12 uh, this morning, but I've decided to just go 1 through 7 in the morning and 8 through uh, the end of the chapter, verse 17, and we'll just take as long as we need tonight. No. Uh, I think it'll be about a half hour, 40 minutes tonight. I encourage you to come back and be a part of that. And, and really, you're going to need to if you're going to make sense out of the whole, the whole chapter. A few weeks ago, we learned that there were two things that were causing distress to the, the young church at Thessalonica. In chapter 1, we learned that some people were uh, persecuting the church in Thessalonica in significant ways and that this was perplexing to them. So in chapter 1, Paul, the apostle, addresses this church and he says that both God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ will be involved in the punishment of those persecutors. Remember that text in chapter 1, it's been two weeks, perhaps uh, it's been some time for you since you last considered it. And in chapter 1, we see Jesus coming with mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God or who have not obeyed his gospel. We learn as well in that text that the punishment will be so significant to the people who were persecuting the Thessalonians and for all unbelievers, it will be so significant that it will involve eternal punishment away from the presence of the glory of Jesus Christ. And that Paul uh, gives them this chapter, these verses, this thought to encourage the Thessalonian believers regarding the fact that God sees them and he, he knows all about the persecution. So we come to chapter 2, there is a second factor that was causing this little band of believers to be distressed. And that second factor is what I called previously to you a false or a fake letter that was written to them. And uh, it becomes obvious as you read through chapter 2 that some person had misled the Thessalonian believers to think the wrong things about their own fate and end times. 
And so that's what we're going to look at both this morning and tonight. And so uh, it appears that these young believers, perhaps only having been saved for four or five years at most, were at a bit of a breaking point. The, the persecution, their situation was rocking them with strong fears, and then someone else takes advantage of it to destroy them. I think Paul was not ignorant of the way Satan works with new believers. Uh, Jesus himself said that the, the evil one would come and would snatch away the seed that is sown. And so Paul is not ignorant of this. And so I, I think Paul recognizes that what these people believe about what they're going through is very important because what they believe, their understanding of theology impacts their behavior. You know, as a pastor, I'm learning this. Uh, I'm, I'm learning that what people think about the word, both in significant concepts and even a little bit more elementary or peripheral concepts, what, what people think impacts the way they live. And it's always a temptation for us, isn't it? Not just for pastors, but for all of us. When we, when we hear someone say something that doesn't quite match the Scripture, it's always a temptation not to say anything. Say, well, you know, that's them, that's their thing. But from Paul the Apostle here, we we will learn today that we must be willing to be graciously involved in correcting false theology because it will lead to false living. As a pastor, for instance, sometimes I observe problems with the way a man views his role as a husband or a father in the home. Uh, Many times I've run across men who believe that they are to mimic the role of God the Father in their family. So what normally happens, what often happens is the father, the man, the husband never acknowledges wrongdoing and demands the same sort of respect that would be given to God, something similar to that to themselves. But this view of the husband or father always produces bad fruit. False thinking produces bad fruit. And what often happens is a wife and children are expected to ignore the sinful actions of dad and his attitudes in the home. And by the way, that gives a terrible view of God to our children and our spouses. Other times, I've seen new believers think that they are made mature in their Christian faith by isolating themselves entirely, or almost entirely, from the world. They, they see them, the world as, I think, rightly polluted by sin, but then they decide to almost remove themselves uh, entirely from contact with neighbor or community. They think that sanctification occurs as they separate themselves and, and then uh, basically ignore some other important texts like John who says that we are to be in the world but not of it. Key being in it but not of it. 
I think of 1 Corinthians chapter 5 when Paul's writing to the Corinthian church. And he says, I wrote to you previously in a letter not to associate with, and he goes through a list of six sins, six heinous sins. People who are immoral, idolatrous, and he just goes through his list of sins and he says, but my intention with that previous letter was not for you to be completely removed from the world, but for you to distance yourself from so-called believers who are engaging in those sort of practices. For Paul recognized that if the Corinthian believers would separate themselves from every immoral and idolater and drunken person in the world, then they would have to go out of it. They wouldn't be able to remain or stay in it. So as a pastor, I must move to graciously address this false theology. But I think the same thing is true of any spiritual believer. Uh, We Any believer who cares about the spiritual well-being of others must graciously point them to what the Scripture actually says about their things. And so that's what I see Paul doing to the Thessalonian believers in chapter 2. And he moves to his chapter in four ways, four parts. We'll look at two this morning. The first thing that Paul does is he describes the Thessalonian dilemma in verses 1 and 2. So what's going on? Let's look at verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. In verse 1, we're introduced to the topic with the phrase, now concerning. And the topic is two things. Uh, The coming of the Lord and are being gathered together. Now, I think what Paul is doing is he's describing two events that occur at about the same time. Um, I don't have time to necessarily develop all of this for you. I would just suggest that this is a common way of writing for the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, where he'll describe kind of two sides of the same coin and connect them with the word and. And so when Paul says, Uh, He's talking about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and being gathered together to him. I think he's describing one event that occurs for the church before the tribulation period, the rapture of the church. Uh, He then goes on, though, in in the the rest of verse 1 and verse 2, to uh, he kind of moves forward to talk about another event, the day of the Lord at the end of verse 2. See that? The day of the Lord. And so he describes uh, this as well. These two topics, the rapture of the church and the day of the Lord, the day when the Lord comes and he judges the world in divine, holy judgment, are two topics he's already dealt with in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, he talked about uh, the return of the Lord and our being gathered to him. Then he follows in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, to describe the day of the Lord. Here in two verses, he talks about both, the rapture and the day of the Lord. Uh, And as he does this, I think it's important to know that some new things have occurred that have uh, called Paul to write this, okay? And what specifically has happened is that someone has uh, led them falsely or given them a false report about the day of the Lord. Someone, some person told them that the day of the Lord 
a time of severe end-time judgment from God upon the world was near or was already occurring. It already started. Now, if you look in your Bible at verse 2, you see that this report came in one of three ways. It says, I don't want you to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by, um, and here are the three ways, a spirit, a spoken word, or a letter. It, it may, this false idea that the day of the Lord was already upon the Thessalonian believers may have come through a supposed prophetic utterance from the Spirit. That's how I take that first one, by a Spirit. Now, technically, only the word Spirit is used here. Came by a Spirit. But Paul has already connected the Holy Spirit to the gift of prophecy in chapter 5. Remember, do not despise prophecy. Do not quench the Spirit. And so, when Paul says that some of the Thessalonians had been misled, it may have come through a spirit. I think it, this would be a prophetic utterance alleging to have come from the Spirit of God. You with me? Understand that? Okay. Or, he says, it might also have come through word. This is the word logos, which I think is just a spoken or oral word that was claiming to be from God, something like prophecy perhaps, but I think he uses this as an alternative to the third way it may have come, a letter. And it's this third one that he describes in more detail, this third possibility, or a letter seeming to be from us, himself and the other writers of this epistle. And so I think that it's highly likely that someone wrote a fake letter to the Thessalonian church saying the day of the Lord has already happened, is already beginning. I think that there's uh, further, there, there are other reasons to hold this. As a matter of fact, flip over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, chapter 3, and I want you to see how Paul closes this letter. Paul closes this letter in a way he doesn't, you know, unlike any other letter that he writes. 2 Thessalonians 3, look with me at verse 17. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. Paul never ends a letter like this where he reminds his readers of what marks out an epistle as being genuine. What you do is you look for my signature at the end. I think that may be possible that Paul reminds them of this because they had already received another letter that was claiming to be from him. And so Paul's concerned with genuine letters, marks of genuineness in his writing. And so he says, look for my signature. Look for these things. And so in one of these three letters, uh, three ways, through, whether it's through a spirit of prophecy, false prophetic utterance, or an oral word, or a written letter, some person had told the Thessalonian believers that the day of the Lord, the day of divine judgment, was already upon them. By the way, how bad must their persecution have been as new believers for them to think that this was the end time judgments that Paul told them about? But notice, however, go back to chapter 2 and look at verse 2 again. 
Notice how this information might have been affecting them. Paul says he does not want them to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed by what this false report was. The word alarmed means he doesn't want them to be disturbed or frightened. The word, words quickly shaken in mind speak of mental instability. It seems that the Thessalonians were experiencing strong fear. Fear that, although maybe it was irrational, it was contagious, so that this young group of new believers were greatly perplexed that they were in the day of the Lord. Now, unfortunately, there are difficulties with knowing exactly what, you know, further, to push further and to say what is really going on here. Um, and that's where I, I think it'd be good for us not to speculate too much. Uh, my, my, my personal opinion is that the Thessalonians thought that the day of the Lord, day of judgment, had already started and that consequently then they feared that they somehow missed the rapture of the church so that they were going to go through all of this divine judgment. Regardless, this is the Thessalonians' dilemma. They thought the day of the Lord was upon them. And this young group of believers were going through severe persecution and were being led by false prophecy or a fake letter to think that God's judgment was on the world. That leads Paul in verses 3 through 7 to uh, do something different. This will be my second point. He then gives an immediate correction. Okay, he's like someone who observes a problem with someone's theology, like any one of us could, could have. You see a problem with the way they're thinking. You can either let it go, or you inject yourself and you say, that's wrong, I've got to clarify. And so Paul clarifies. He gives this immediate correction, verses 3 through 7. And his immediate correction is to you know, uh, correct their false understanding of the Lord's day by saying two events must happen first. Okay, so we're going to look first at verses 3 through 5 to see that one precursor to the day of the Lord was the act of rebellion and the revelation of the lawless one. Look at verse 3. Paul says, let no one deceive you in any way. He has a command. He only commanded the section. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way whatsoever. <clears throat> and then he corrects. <clears throat> For that day, the day of the Lord, will not come unless something comes first. The rebellion. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you about these things? So after that first command, don't let anyone deceive you, Paul explains Two events that must precede the day of the Lord. He describes the first one as the rebellion. The rebellion comes from the word uh, apostasia, which sounds like apostasy. 
in modern English. But this word literally means or speaks of a departure or a removal. A departure or a removal. So Paul's saying, you know what? The day of the Lord, the day of God's divine judgment, can't come until the departure or the removal happens first. And really, there are two ways you can take this. Some theologians say that the departure, the removal, is a literal departure, a physical departure. I'd say that's probably a better way of saying it. a physical departure that one group or one person has to leave and go another place. Okay, now this word for uh, re- rebellion is only used two times in the New Testament in noun form. Okay, and the other time it's used in Acts, it can mean that, but it is used in verb form throughout the New Testament, and often it means or it speaks of someone going somewhere, a departure a going away, uh, leaving one physical location to go to another. So some people believe that Paul is telling them here that the church must be raptured before the day of the Lord arrives. Okay, so they would prefer you to translate it something like uh, this. You're in uh, chapter uh, 2 here in verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the removal or the departure comes first, okay? And so you can see why some people would say that's, that's the church being departing or removing, okay? And while I would agree with that theologically, I think we will depart, we will leave before the time of the great day of the Lord, I think that there's a better way to understand this, the, uh, the rebellion here, okay? And I would see it as a religious departure, So the rest of verse 4 describes the rebellion, I think, and connects it with a great apostasy that one man commits. Great departure that one man leads. So look with me at verse 4, or actually even at the end of verse 3. It says, unless the rebellion comes first, I think the rest of this might describe what rebellion he's talking about. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. I I think it's better uh, to see that Paul's describing a religious apostasy that occurs in the end times. Here, to describe the man who leads it, he gives this man two titles. He calls him the man of lawlessness, which is a graphic description, I think, of the true nature of this man. This man, who we'll find out later in the text, who's energized by Satan, will stand for everything uh, that is against God. He rejects God's laws. I would connect this man and other texts in the New Testament to the Antichrist, who rejects God's Christ. This man of lawlessness is the epitome of enmity with God. He rebels against God's law. He rejects God's Christ. He is the man of lawlessness. The second description of him is he's the son of destruction. You see that in the text? Son of destruction. This title means this man is doomed or destined to be destroyed. He's born to be destroyed. 
His father's name is destruction. Another way of saying this. And again, this is a very vivid description, which uh, actually does occur in one other place in your Bible. The only other time I found this phrase occurring to describe anyone was uh, in John chapter 17, verse 12, where it is used of one man who was born for destruction. He was the son of destruction. His name was Judas Iscariot. And so I think Judas Iscariot, and what we know to be true of that text, how, how Satan filled Judas's heart to betray the Lord Jesus Christ, might be the, an example of how in the future Satan will fill the heart of one human being the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, to oppose God and to lead this world in religious apostasy. He further describes this man in his action, verse 4, at the conclusion of verse 4. He says, this man opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. He doesn't just stand in opposition to God himself, but any object or so-called God, he, he is self-exalted. He puts himself over, and keep reading, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. I think taking his seat in the temple of God uh, is a very significant statement. I like how I. Howard Marshall described this. He said, to sit in the temple is tantamount to claiming one is God and worthy of worship. So this human being in the future will be led by Satan to oppose God and to take a seat in the temple and exalt himself as God. Now since this has not ever happened literally, being fully fulfilled, it has led a lot of Christians today to say that maybe this is a metaphor, this taking a seat in the temple and claiming to be God, is maybe it's just a metaphor for a person in the future who will oppose God generally. Um, however, I think it's best when I compare it with the rest of Scripture to say I think this is literally fulfilled in a temple that will be rebuilt in Jerusalem. I can connect it with other passages in the Old New Testament to describe this. I think that in the future, in the temple that will be rebuilt in Jerusalem, a man will go in, in the place of God, and will, will, he'll, he'll, he'll establish his own rule, and he'll demand to be worshipped. And so Paul says here in verse 5, don't you remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? Although Paul had already, he had already informed these things, he repeats it here so that they aren't confused or frightened by the false prophecy or the fake letter that they received. Didn't I already tell you that the day of the Lord can't be here yet because one major thing has to happen. The man of lawlessness, the son of the destruction must arrive and he must set himself up in the temple in Jerusalem. That leads to one other precursor, and this is where we'll end today, verses 6 and 7. One other event that has to happen before the day of the Lord. Actually, it has to happen before the son of lawlessness 
is introduced, or the lawless one. Look at verse 6. And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And so in this text, the second precursor to the day of the Lord is the removal of a being or a force that Paul calls the restrainer. Okay, and that that leads us to asking the question, who or what is Paul talking about when he says restrainer? Well, the word restrainer speaks of one who holds back something, one who restrains it. Makes sense, right? One who is holding back something. In this case, he's holding back the son of destruction, the man of lawlessness. This word, restrainer, is found in both a neuter and a masculine form in verses 6 and 7. I want you to see it in your Bible. Look, look at verse 6 again, and there in that text it says, and you know what is restraining him. I think the ESV does a good job. You know what, that's neuter. It's not a person. You know there's a force or there's a, uh, some sort of being, not a person. You know what is restraining him. That's neuter. And then in verse 7, look at the middle of verse only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. There, it's a masculine description. Okay, so I told you, this is probably one of the most difficult texts in the New Testament to figure out. And I, I don't claim to have it all figured out at all. Matter of fact, I was posting some things, and uh, I, this week I posted something on Facebook, and I said, you know what? I'm going to talk about the restrainer this week, and I can't wait. And uh, someone basically said, you might as well not even talk about that because we've tried for 2,000 years to figure it out, and no one could. And I said, yeah, until now, right, until now we figure this out. I mean, this, this is a hard subject and a hard text. As I've studied the last two weeks, and that's what you do as a preacher sometimes, if you know there's a really hard text coming, you get a guest speaker during one week, and that buys you another week to study. Okay, there was one time there was a text in Philippians I was going to, Philippians 2 I was going to speak on. I had like three guest speakers in a row uh, to buy me a month to study that text and try to figure it out. As I look at who or what is the restrainer, is it a person, is it a force? I mean, how do we figure this out? I found no less than 14 different proposals throughout history. And maybe there's a new one that you would like to propose. Some people say it's human government or the Roman Empire. They're especially talking about Paul's time and writing to the Thessalonians. Others say the Roman uh, emperors themselves. So maybe it wasn't the empire, but the emperors. Others say, no, the restrainer is God. Others say the Holy Spirit. Others say an archangel. Some say Paul's talking about himself. Paul is the restrainer who will be taken out of the way. Other people say, no, it's not Paul, but it's his gospel proclamation, that he's got to proclaim the gospel and that the gospel needs to be proclaimed to the, you know, all the places God wants it to. And when that happens, maybe then the son of destruction, the lawless one, <coughs> will be allowed to come. Still others say maybe it's the church itself. 
as I work through this, again, knowing there are all kinds of different ways you could take this, I find it best or most helpful to ask the question, who or what would be powerful enough to prevent a satanically empowered man, the Antichrist, from coming and doing his work. And so that shortens it down for me just a little bit, the list. That leads me to prefer the view that the restrainer is the Holy Spirit. I think it makes much sense out of this passage. The Spirit is a he masculine terms describing the spirit but the noun itself the word pneuma is a neuter word so he's a he but you can also use neuter word a neuter word to describe him and the holy spirit definitely has the power to keep satan or satanic man neutralized so it may be that the Holy Spirit's influence now is holding off the lawless one until God calls the Holy Spirit's influence off. Others suggest, and I think that this could be the case, that it is a combination of the Holy Spirit and the church. That the Holy Spirit is specifically restraining this lawless man from coming and doing his work through the influence and presence of the church. Matter of fact, there was a preacher, teacher, that many of you know who wrote a little thesis about this, uh, Dr. Davey, okay, Daniel Davey. Uh, I think it was a, a master's thesis. I haven't read the whole thing. Don't tell him. Uh, but it, what I read was really good. I think he suggests it's uh, the church and the Holy Spirit. Having said this again, we must be careful not to go too far in this text. While we can suggest that it's the Holy Spirit, evidence will only take us so far. We should be careful not to be overly dogmatic about our understanding of the restrainer and recognize that Paul's point in this text is not to necessarily predict the future, although everything he says about the future I think will happen and is real because the Spirit leads it. His point is a pastoral point. He knows that the Thessalonian believers are greatly distressed and perplexed and that someone with a fake letter or a fake prophecy has confused them and that they're afraid. And so he writes this section to remind them of things he's already said. I told you before, you're not in the day of the Lord. It can't come until this Lawless one comes first and does his work, and he can't come until the restrainer is taken out of the way. And so Paul here corrects false theology that was frightening and alarming this church. We too must intervene when someone's understanding of the word is off, for false theology produces bad fruit. If you're concerned about another believer and how they're doing, follow Paul's plan. Graciously intervene and use the word to affect their thinking and their behavior. And might I say this as well as a final 
application, an admonishment to us. We should always be willing to submit our view, our views, and our life to the Word of God. And so if someone shows us how our thinking is not in line with the Scripture, we reject our view, we accept this book. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this text. It is a hard text. It's a challenging one. It's, it's difficult. But Lord, I'm, I'm thankful for what I see of Paul's pastoral heart. He hears that this church is devastated by a false letter, fake letter. And so he writes to graciously remind them of things he's already told them. Lord, in his reminders, we're encouraged again that, and uh, we will find out even tonight, that in the end, this son of destruction, this lawless one, will not win. But the Lord Jesus, upon his arrival, will defeat him, as the text says, with the breath of his mouth. Thank you that we serve such a great God who will defeat Satan and this false teacher of the end times. I pray that we would rest and trust in him. Lord, give us strength then as we interact with other believers, perhaps who have wrong or false understandings of their own life or the Scripture. Lord, give us wisdom in knowing how to take the Word and to apply it to their lives, how Paul did with these Thessalonians, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.